Today, I sit down with Nicole, who was a media buyer turned creative strategist and has managed over $70 million in ad spend throughout her career. And today we're gonna to be talking about all things creative strategy, how she utilizes creative strategy with her clients, and the power of AI and how to utilize AI in your creative strategy. I'm Nikita from aspectagency.com and let's get into the podcast. Nicole, I knew I had to get you on after we had that dinner about a month ago because the way that you discuss creative strategy is just so much more higher level than anyone else that I've talked to. So welcome on the show. Thank you so much for having me. I'm looking forward to diving deep and hopefully sharing a little bit of value on creative strategy and how it all ties together. Exactly. And I'm that's the main reason why I brought you on is because I've never seen anyone talk about it as you did. And I think the first the best way to get into it is Nick Therio put up a tweet the other day on Twitter asked, say, basically saying creative strategist is just a copywriter, changed my mind. And you spit out a pretty much an essay going over how that's completely wrong. So the main thing that you brought up is that copywriters are just using written word, but creative strategists use written word plus visuals in that sense. And they're the, I guess, the visionary for the brand or for the advertising that they're using. So how does that play into what you specifically do? Yeah, that's a really great question. That was such a, a spicy one for me because I've seen a lot of um, pushback on, oh, the creative strategist is just a copywriter, right? And this is something I also talk about on Twitter and also in my course, but the visual elements, like the ad itself is composed of more than just the copy. The copy is going to obviously convey the message very well, but the visual elements and the person involved or the graphics involved in the actual ad component, it all comes together. And the copywriter usually doesn't have a say in that side of things. They're usually just focused on the written word. So while yes, they do have a say in the ad itself, it's just doesn't comprise of the whole thing, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think we're just getting to that point in media buying where everything is, um, is deconstructed. You know, you used to have just a media buyer that ran ads, ran the copy, uh, did all the targeting. Now you have an actual media buyer and you have a copywriter, creative strategist, a designer for the landing page. You know, you have all these different roles that play into just advertising as a whole. And I know you've experienced this from day one because I know you used to be a media buyer. So how have you seen that sort of evolve into the position that you're doing now, which is being a creative strategist? Yeah, I think there's, you could break up each of the roles that you brought up into like two different buckets. There's like the strategy and the visionary, and then there's like the executor, the person actually doing the work. I think the creative strategist, and this kind of also differentiates the creative strategist from a copywriter and media buyer, is they're less focused on executing per se, and they're more focused on holistically planning, um, incorporating the brand's message and strategic vision into each ad, and looking at it from a, a like at that 30,000 foot view in terms of what messages are we getting out to the customers in what form and um, to what depth, like what awareness level is the consumer at? And I don't think that these other rules, they're just focused on executing. Let's launch ads, let's write the written words, or if they're a graphic designer, let's design. And so by having this creative strategist role, you uh, prevent those other rules from having to switch back and forth because it does take a lot of energy to go from drawing out an entire content plan and strategy to then launching and executing on whatever subtask that you have. It's removing that friction from switching back and forth. Yeah, that's that's like such a very un what do you call it? Un, 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 un unrecognized role or just undervalued because a lot of the people that are executing 
they're very in the weeds and they can't see everything from a high level overview, which I think gives you a good perspective when you are looking at everything from a high level and you can see like, okay, cool. We're, we were planning on doing these ads, but why are we working on these ads? And I, you brought up a point of uh, visualizing where the ad creative or the copy or the experience should go. And I know for some people, it may seem a little bit abstract to you know visualize that if they're just looking at the ROAS, you know, how do you sort of remove yourself in that specific scenario? Or like, what is the process that you go through when you are creating the vision for the campaigns or for the specific ads that you're going to be running for a brand? Yeah, I have a pretty large process. I create strategy because you have your hand in so many different pieces and you're working with so many different team members. You really do have I would say my process is currently like nine steps. There's a few pillars or steps in creative strategy that are really key and the creative strategies I think should own. But mm -hmm. then there's a couple of pillars where they overlap with, as you said, the media buyer or the content production team. Um, but the first step in creative strategy is getting alignment throughout your teams. Uh, I often bring up the conversation like brand versus performance. And that's a usually hot topic with clients. Like, are we trying to run really aggressive style ads and like, bold claims where like lose 15 pounds in two days style is that like on brand for you and or is it um too performance oriented and so making sure that not only the media buyer who usually leans more performance oriented but also like the graphic designer the copywriter that everyone's on the same page um that's first step of career strategies making sure you know the guardrails from the stakeholders and that translates into the ads um and keeping everyone, like I mentioned, you know, consistent throughout the entire ad campaign. Um, second step is diving deeper into the research. Um, I think research often gets overlooked. Perhaps this is where it overlaps a little with the copywriters, because they're usually, instead of writing, they have to do all this research because it hasn't been done. So I think mm -hmm. the creative strategist is plucking that portion off the copywriter's plate, like, hey, let us, the creative strategist, handle the research for you. You go write. Take this research and run with it. But we'll set the foundation, not only for the copywriters, but for the media buyers and their insights, for the graphic designers, for the UGC creators. We're basically setting the foundation for the brand's vision, the messages we want to relay, the insights that are coming directly from consumers. Um, and we're diving deeper in the research. I personally like to break it into like two main components, internal research, external research. Internal is like everything to do about your avatars, um, comments that people are having on the ads, anything internal to the brand's message and um, brand guidelines, and then external is like competitive spying. What mm -hmm. is everyone else doing? What are the market trends? What are the TikTok audio sounds that are, you know, crushing right now? Copywriters probably not going to go that deep, at least yeah. on the external. It's That's just a lot of effort for a copywriter to even handle to do all of that deep dive research. Definitely, and then not only do you have to go do this research. Then you have to apply it. So as a copywriter, man, that's a lot of work switching gears. Wouldn't it be nice to just have all this research done for you and you just take it, synthesize and write your avatorial or write your body copy or write your headlines. That's, I think, a game changing um, reason to have a creative strategist on your team is it helps the rest of your team members all focus on what they're really good at. Right. So one thing that brings that comes to my forefront is like, you know, you have a creative strategist on board. I don't know how you specifically plug into your to into existing teams of brands, and we can maybe dive into that here later. But let's say, okay, cool, we plugged you in as a creative strategist. You did all the research. You did all the 
all the like the main data points that you have to do. And after you've compiled all this data and you've, you know, you've created the actual strategy that you should be following for like, let's say the next 60 to 90 days, you know, what's stopping a brand from just not working with you after that 60 to 90 day period? Because we all know that marketing is a consistent effort of consistent improvement, but to someone that isn't as reliable or relied on a creative strategist, they may not see that value long-term. So how do you, I guess, fight that rebuttal? Yeah, I would say uh, as a career strategist, I wouldn't generate content or strategy more than a quarter out. And the reason mm-hmm. for that, and it's quite apparent if you're media buying, is the platform changes constantly. The algorithm is always being updated. There's always new trends on TikTok. And to stay relevant and stay fresh to that specific time frame, especially taking into fact seasonality, it's going to be very difficult to go beyond 90 days. So hypothetically, as you mentioned, if I generated this 90-day plan and shipped it off to the brand, what keeps them on the creative strategist continuing to work with them is the iteration process. Creative strategy, you've got the initial strategy, right? And it should be a fluid doc. If It's not rigid for my strategies. It's like, this is what I think is going to happen. Here's how we can plan. And these are the ads and concepts that we want to launch. But at the end of the day, I'm letting the data determine what direction we go if you know there's so many different ways you can iterate and half of your strategy is like overarching concepts and angles we want to launch the other half is what's already winning in the account and how can we expand that horizontally and we won't know what's winning into the in the account and what angles and concepts succeed until we get that data back until we get those results so the other portion of career strategy is helping the media buyer with the iteration process it's like okay now you've got data and results now what you don't want to just continue forth with your original strategy. You want to make sure that your strategy aligns with the latest insights and updates that you have in the account that week, that month, et cetera. So I think that helps keep the creative strategist uh, onboarded through the process because it can be very tough for the media buyer to translate those that data into actionable content for the content production team. Absolutely. And I think the biggest thing with media buyers is more so like the accountability because you know, media buyers have ideas all the time when they're going into the accounts like, oh, we need to run this. We need to run this. Hey, let's try this out. And they're coming up with ideas faster than even the designer can sometimes even pump them out. I'm sure you've seen this time and time again. And while that's great, and I'm glad that they're being proactive about that, uh, most of the time it's to the detriment of the brand because they're going off of the strategy. You're not fully going through the strategy. And sometimes you may need a course correct. You know, that is a given fact of, you know, maybe the ads aren't performing as they should be, need a course correct to back to what was working. But for the most part, I think a lot of brands don't follow the actual strategy. They always have like that shiny object syndrome. You know, it was reels or it was like, uh, you know, TikTok vertical ads. Now it's back to static ads and back to carousel ads. Now it's, you know, we, we don't know what's going to be happening in Q4 of this year, essentially. So one thing I did want to touch on, and I, we talked about this over dinner a few weeks ago, is how you know how to seek out ads that are going to perform well, or at least you know which ads are performing well and aren't performing well based off the structure of the actual ad. Can you walk me through that process on like, how can you, how do you know, or based off your experience, how would you know if an ad works or doesn't work or what things you look for? Yeah, there's, that's a, can be very challenging if you're coming in with a no experience. Experience yeah. is going to play a heavy role in knowing what's going to work and what's not, as well as diving into the research and insights directly from your customers. The customers aren't quiet. They will tell you exactly why they purchase something usually. And the longer the review, usually the more meat in it. 
um, I use, you know, the customer post-purchase surveys or the reviews that customers leave as kind of, I use that so much as the foundation to like build my ad concepts out of. So I feel very strongly, especially if I'm seeing consumers talk about the same angle or the same idea over and over and over again, I've, that builds up that confidence level that that's going to be successful. Um, and ultimately then I'm building off of what I think is winning. Another thing that can help build confidence in knowing which ads are gonna hit is when you're doing that competitive spy on your competitors is looking at the actual engagement on those ads. Does mm -hmm. it seem to be resonating with that target audience? Does it have a lot of likes, hearts, engagements, comments? Then there's probably a decent amount of budget on there and it's a bit of assumption, but if it's been running for a long duration, pretty safe to assume it's doing all right and it's worth perhaps testing in your own ad account right and how do you keep track of all that because like just thinking about managing the engagement of a single competitor is you know one out of their 40 ads that seems like a lot of just heavy lifting so how do you manage that workflow yeah i have what i call like an idea box and it's basically a database usually i built it out in notion but you can do it in google sheets for free too but it's a centralized spot where each team member, the media buyer, the copywriter, your graphic designer, every team member ha can have their ideas heard. And it's mm -hmm. one central area where you can just drop whatever idea you have. Now, the key to the idea box is obviously organization. A couple columns that are really helpful to have is like the impact score. And it's a bit subjective. I usually do like a one to five star rating. You could do one to 10. But basically, it's like how much impact do we think this idea is going to have? Mm -hmm. That's going to help us prioritize if we want to actually execute. Because you mentioned the media buyer usually has a bunch of these ideas. How do you know which ones are worth actually pursuing in the ad account? Um, impact is going to be a big one. And then the ease to launch the idea. So like simple headline tweaks, those are so fast. There shouldn't be a lot of friction to launching a new headline versus, hey, we need an entire new landing page because we've got this new angle we want to launch. Then that's going to impact prioritization as well. So I'd say... Having one centralized location, all your ideas in there and start to prioritize and allocating a little bit of budget, depending on your, your cadence and how much you're scaling yeah. to just launching these new ideas. I think you brought up a good point of having two different matrices to like go off of, of like how much impact it's going to have and how simple it is to implement. Uh, and the headline being a good example here, how much you know, obviously there's things that need to be changed or things that a media buyer would want to implement into the ad account. You know, how many, how many times, I wouldn't even say how many times, but like how often do you see like client pushback on a specific change that they would want to make? And then you lead, you go through like that whole entire bureaucracy process of like, there's not on brand or, you know, we don't want to use emojis here. You, you've dealt with this before. Um, but like, I've, I want to say that having that impact sheet is great but sometimes a client and the bureaucracy behind the client may get in the way of that how how have you dealt with that yeah that always can be a challenge it goes back to that initial alignment of having that conversation up front day one the more confidence you can build into whoever you're working with being the stakeholders or the client in your ability to execute really sound ideas and when they see the dollars come in they usually are pretty quiet after that but it's all starting from the get-go, that onboarding process, building confidence, right. um, having that direct conversation, becoming aligned on the same page on the do's and don'ts, and then having a conversation, put that idea box right in front of you and like, hey, this is the impact I think these ideas are going to have. And you've got them all rated out. Here's how long they all take to take with your current production team or media buying team. Sometimes yeah. it's going to be longer, you know, it fluctuates. 
what do you want to launch first? Let's talk about it. Let's sit there and prioritize together. So this is an exercise I usually do with the client, determining the priorities. I will have a very heavy say at this point because I'm more experienced. I'll be like, hey, this is what I think we need to launch first. But at the end of the day, uh, if the client pushes back, I'll let them and let the results speak for itself. Right. I've had I've learned this very early on in my freelance career way back a couple of years ago where, you know, you have your say in something and it's like, I know the best way to go about this is is X. And the client's like, well, we should go about Y. And I'm like, OK, cool. Let's do Y and see how it works out. And then typically we boomerang back into X because that's the best way to go about it. Yeah. Um, and I usually don't fight the client back on that until, you know, you, see, you have the results show. Now, I want to switch sides here a little bit and and say you're doing this freelance pretty much, right? Or you're doing this solo. How are you able to manage this, you know, on a day-to-day basis or on a week-by-week basis of, I don't know how many clients you have or, or whatever. You don't have to share that, but more so like how do you manage doing all of the creative strategy and all the work and managing, I'm guessing, a ton of Slack channels in the meantime uh, on a weekly basis? It helps to have the right team members in place. Like I'm not doing the media buying. Oftentimes I'm not writing the copy. I'm also not uh, managing UGC creators and I'm not the graphic designer. So I'm being very clear um, when I onboard my clients on what roles need to be filled before you take on a career strategy helps a lot because then I put a lot of trust in those team members to execute. And then I can focus on what I do best, which is the research, the insights and generating those angles out the gate. Uh, that's very helpful. Uh, I find blocking my time also very helpful to ensure that each client gets my attention. In certain right. parts. Especially when it comes to creative work, you really have to put your phone on do not disturb and remove all distractions so that you can sit there and focus. Um, I find that to be very helpful too. Yeah. Removing the iMessages from my computer has been the best <laughs> thing by far. And like just closing Slack off for like two hours has been just a game changer. And I, I saw that you were recently also removed all Slack and social media off your phone. And I'm sure that's been super helpful. Yeah, it's crazy how much time you actually have in the day when you're not sitting there scrolling or even just like, I was guilty of picking up my phone, yep. getting distracted. Even opening Slack on my phone when I have Slack on my desktop sitting here working, it makes no sense at all. But yeah, it's so much more time in your day, so much more energy and yeah, Clients have not said anything yet, knock on wood, but yep. um, it doesn't seem to be impacting my day-to-day performance. If anything, I think I'm better and have even more time to give to clients. If you really want to take that up a notch and, and do that on steroids, put your phone on airplane mode the night before you go to sleep and don't turn it on until like 1030 or 11 in the in, in the morning. I'm going to take notes on that one. That's That's solid. I do that and I wake up just, the only thing that I have go off on my phone is just my alarm clock. And that's it. I wake up and I immediately get to work and um, just start working. I usually get a really good two to three hour deep work sesh after that. So highly recommend. Yeah. Uh, one thing that I did want to, you know, talk about here, and this is more so like a big elephant in the room of AI, you know, how are you, you, you said you do a lot of extensive research and I'm assuming that you use AI in that research process somewhat. So how do you, how are you leveraging AI right now in, in your current workload? Every step in the career strategy process, I'm using AI for, and just full disclaimer there, my clients know this. I'm very transparent with my clients on when something's AI generated with my kind of tweaks to it versus when something's right. completely done 
fully human, which is so weird to say. I feel like we're going to need a, a stamp on yep. our being like fully human or uh, made with AI or something kind of like organic. Um, for the research process, what I find most helpful to use AI is it does a wonderful job with sentiment analysis. It used to be a completely manual process where like if you've read the book, Marketing the Mind States, I think it's Will Leach. He goes yeah. over the 18 mind states. It's really nine positive and negative variations. And you can, I use this now to read through my custom reviews and figure out which one of these nine mind states is the consumer in. Mm -hmm. This used to be a very manual process where I review one, review two, review three, and then I'm manually categorizing one through nine. And that's kind of the backbone to the NLP. Well, now I can just paste in the reviews. Uh, there's a bit of a limit due to the um, character count on AI, yep. but let's say 20 reviews. You can paste them in, say, hey, based on the book, Marketing to Mind States, or whatever framework you want to analyze it, categorize these reviews. And then boom, it immediately populates. And will give you oftentimes a breakdown too of why it categorized in that fashion. So it can be very powerful to very quickly figure out where your consumers' heads are at. And you can also use AI, to the exact same, populate those reviews and ask it like, what are you know the pain points from these reviews? What are the core angles that are they're, the consumers talking about? Well, help them purchase the product or what are their objections? You can ask the sort of questions and it will immediately pull it out for you. It just makes you so much more efficient at doing that down and dirty work. Yeah, I've noticed doing the testimonial and review analysis has been such a game changer for us. Has there, aside from you know doing that normal prompt of like based off of this book or based off of this framework, categorize these reviews um, and you know format them into a CSV or a, a table breakdown. Any other pre-prompting or pre-training that you had to do? The more you inputs you give the AI before you ask it to do something, the stronger the output. So. For example, if you're having that brand versus performance conversation and you know, hey, we're more performance oriented, having mm -hmm. language like direct response copywriter type language or um, please include these elements and adding your van your brand's voice into mm -hmm. it before you, for example, ask it to write a script can be very helpful as well. Any avatar details, these avatar pro profiles get a lot of flack for these aren't really helpful. How do you actually use them? AI, um, writing your concepts based on the avatars you've built is going to be really powerful versus just writing a concept, not really knowing who exactly you're going after. Um, so the more detailed your avatar profiles are, the stronger the concepts and how you can tie that concept to the avatar will be. So yeah, the more inputs, the better. Absolutely. You actually brought up a good idea that I'm actually writing down right now of setting up like a concatenate formula in Google Sheets to like take all the avatar information to one big prompt. So I'm going to do that after the call. But awesome. <laughs> that's a really good idea uh, or a good good way of going about it because that's what I've learned as I've just been using it more and more daily. Like it wasn't like a zero to 100 jump for me. It was more like, oh, let me try it out this week, this week. And then I'm slowly using it more and more. Now at this point, I'm using it daily to do a lot of the tasks. So it was a nice, easy transition. And at, funny enough, I actually taught my dad how to use it over the last week. Um, he was like, Hey, he's he like, Hey, can you teach me how to do this? I'm like, okay, cool. Here's how you do this, this, and this. And some of them you can, some tasks you couldn't do for his job. Some of them you could, you can. Um, but 
either way, he has a, a good basic framework of how to use AI now for his job, which is great, saves him a lot of time. Uh, but on our end, we've been using it a lot for just getting that customer sentiment through reviews, having basic copy written out for us so that way we can fill in a lot of the details. So we are leveraging it to help speed up the copywriting process, but not so much to the point where it's a direct copy and paste. I'm sure at some point we'll get there. Um, but in your experience, like, has there, aside from, you know, doing the customer sentiment, sentiment and utilizing it in every single touch point, um, anything, I guess, like any big golden nuggets that you can share with the audience that, uh, that you use it for? AI for? Yeah. Um, copy is a big one, but I think people underestimate how good it can actually become. If you just send it a simple prompt, it probably is going to spit out some very poor copy. But if you follow like Eugene Short's breakthrough advertising yep. and you prompt AI with the market sophistication and with the consumer awareness level, that's for the brand and ad that you're developing that you're going for, right. that is going to give you so many more options and um, more sophisticated co copy that it's just crazy what can it can spit out um so so between the you know giving it avatars giving it the market sophistication the consumer awareness and um and some really strong concepts it can be pretty game-changing um the tone as well whether you're asking for it to write something more direct response or write something more flowery and empathetic for example yeah, the the point of giving it really, really good inputs has been probably the best thing that I've like, that's the best recommendation I can give to everyone. Because here's like a, a crazy example that I've used it for is I took a call recording that I did uh, for as like a pitch for a prospect. It was like an over the phone call. I couldn't record it on my phone. So I had just like my computer laying around just to record the call because I record all my sales calls. So I took that transcript threw it into ChatGPT. I'm like, can you summarize this into a three-month action plan that I can then send over to a client? And it did that. Granted, I had to break it up because it was a 30-minute call. It was a lot of text. Um, but it broke, like, after breaking it up month by month, I had to consolidate everything. And instead of spending, like, an hour and a half or two hours listening and typing out the proposal, I was able to get it done within, like, 10 to 15 minutes. So the oh. inputs of transcription has been also really good. I don't know if you run your own newsletter or how you write your content or what your content workflow is, but there's a lot of like looms that I've made custom for client audits or maybe email audits that I've done. And I took the transcript from loom, copied that, threw it into chat GBT, And I'm like, Hey, make this into a newsletter. And then it spit it out. And then obviously hit it with a, make it funnier and casual. And then it sounded just like me. And I've sent that out and people I've actually gotten really good responses from that. Yeah. I think that's a solid strategy. I do something similar with client calls where it's a call dedicated to career strategy. There's so many nuggets and little things said from the client that may get overlooked or not even dropped into that idea box. And exactly as you mentioned, you can prompt AI with the transcript from the call, have it synthesized and give you basically agenda and the next steps and an overview of the call. Oh my gosh, is that game changing for someone like me, who's usually a note taker and slapping yep. away. Now I can actually focus on the call and not worry about the notes. Um, it's going to be interesting, all the note-taking softwares that are going to become obsolete because AI is just much better at doing it. Yeah, 100%. I'm currently using Assembly. It's 
it's just doing the job right now, but we'll see how it evolves as a software to maybe utilizing some of those AI functions to get like a cool call breakdown that I can just copy and paste into a, a summary email or a summary Slack or whatever. Now, I want to close this off with a really, really good question. And I think something that the audience can take a lot away from. I'd say this is something that I ask a lot of the people that are on the podcast. And it's, you know, what are the three low-hanging fruits that a brand or a media buyer or a copywriter can take away from utilizing creative strategy um, and implementing it into their own media buying strategy? Creative strategy, I think, is very heavy on the ideation process. And so if you have really clean ideation frameworks to bring your team together to diversify the angles and um, concepts that you're developing, that can be very helpful, especially when you prompt those same ideation frameworks in AI. I often use AI as basically like a mini brainstorming buddy. And Mm -hmm. I'm going back and forth um, because most people won't sit there and work with you. Uh, I definitely think that's very underutilized and something that can be very powerful. Another random nugget kind of tied to creative strategy and avatar development, but no one's talking about this and I don't understand why, is Crystal Nose. It's a Google Chrome plugin in a site. There you have a free trial that you can try. But basically, once you've identified your ideal buyer persona and then one step deeper, your avatar, if you can tie that to a real customer and find them on LinkedIn, take Crystal Nose plugin and I don't know, click the button basically, and it will give you a crazy psychoanalysis on that avatar profile that goes so much more deeper than just basic demographic information. Like basically their disk profiles and how you should speak to them. It was initially meant for um, interviewing candidates for hiring purposes. So you can understand the personality of who you're hiring, but why not use it to find out the personality of your customer that you're targeting? It's just like mind blowing. So that is definitely a low hanging fruit. I don't hear about anyone using that. And then a third one. Um, oh, this is a good one. This one to talk about a lot with research is if you're not using ad spy tools, you're missing like at least 60% of all insights that could be generated when you're doing competitive research. One of the ma- main reasons for this is like, you probably know, you know, if you go to the back end of Facebook ads library, you're only seeing what's on that branded fan page. Yep. Anyone that's running heavy performance oriented angles, they're not going to run those on their pretty branded fan page. They usually have three to four to five affiliate fan pages, um, influencer accounts, any sort of hidden fan page that they don't want you to see. That's where the aggressive performance oriented angles are. If you haven't looked into it, Blissey is a perfect. Uh, example of a brand that has multiple fan pages that you can spy on. So what Blissey has on their branded page, you'll see all the polished looking ads, very clean, very uh, brand focused. And then you'll see all their hidden fan pages. And it may be like, mommy loves wine. And mommy loves wine has very different style messaging and copy. So being very mindful of that is huge when it comes to creative strategy. Yeah, I think all three of those are great. I've never heard of Crystal Nose, so I'm I'm gonna look into that after this. Yeah, um, <laughs> it's a good one. I think the, you know, working on working through the avatar and working through the actual research and being more intentional with that and having those conversations that um, would the creative team, the copy team, and the media buying team together need to happen 
uh, on a whole level rather than like, we're going to do this and that and that, you know, having like maybe like an hour long call going through the entire strategy and being like, Hey, look, this is what we're going to be focusing on for Q3 or Q4. And then actually intentionally working towards that goal. Now we're almost out of time here and I wanted to make sure to get your plugs in. So where is the best place to find you, Nicole? And I know you brought up a course, so where can people find that as well? I'm on Twitter and LinkedIn for anything career strategy related. And if you click in my bios, the, the link there will send you to my career strategy master course where I go deep into all these different pillars. Fantastic. Guys, please give her a follow. She's always dropping nuggets. Um, so thanks again, Nicole, for coming on. And it was a pleasure to have you. Awesome. Thanks so much for having me. Pleasure right. is mine. Have a good one. Thanks again for joining us on the Scaling E-Commerce podcast. If you enjoyed it or learned something new, remember to like, subscribe, and leave a review. It really helps out with the algorithm. If you want email marketing tips delivered straight to your inbox on a weekly basis from yours truly, then check out the link below or in the show notes to subscribe and join my newsletter. If you're a D2C brand with at least 10,000 email subscribers and interested in starting a conversation to work together, then go to aspectagency.com and we'd love to chat with you. And if you want to stay up to date with anything email and SMS, just follow me on Twitter at Nikita Vakrushev or check the show notes for the link. With that said, I'm Nikita and I'll see you in the next one.